Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan, and it's May 2021, which means we must be talking about Epic versus Apple. Today, day six. If you haven't followed the rest of our series, we've got a playlist called an Antitrust Epic that's going to be at 40 videos when this goes up. We've also got another playlist that I added just for the purposes of this trial called, very specifically, just the trial. So if you just want to follow with the days of the trial, you can check out that playlist or you can ask for notifications of that playlist. You can do whatever you like there. Now, talking about day six, the testimony that happened yesterday on May 10th, we don't actually have a lot of materials leaked out. The court seems to have gotten around some of the leaks that were happening in the first week, apparently by not uploading as many documents over to the Dropbox that they were using for the other days of testimony. So we don't quite have all of those updates at the ready. We do, however, have some catch-up documentation, some catch-up articles that people have written from The Verge, from GameSpot, from places like Games Industry Biz that actually asked a couple of lawyers to talk about things. And, well, you might recognize one of them. Now, this is a very long article. I think they did a great job of actually having a couple of lawyers here that see things from a different perspective. So if you've ever thought, hey, you know, Rick's wrong on this, or maybe Rick goes too far on this particular argument, as I've always said, go triangulate, read different sources. And they have some really good quotes from another lawyer that basically sees things from Epic's perspective uh, and really wants Tim Sweeney to win, as he admits at the end of this particular article. So please do check that out. Games Industry Biz was nice enough to ask me for my opinions on what happened on week one. And I think you'll be seeing a similar article for the weeks to come in this trial, which it appears will be about three weeks long. So I'll use the Fortnite joke one more time. I think we have a Fortnite from here to go for the remainder of the case. With that all being said, we can now talk about what was actually testified to during day six of the trial. As Addie Robertson at The Verge says in her opening tweet yesterday, week two of Epic versus Apple begins. We'll start with Epic Marketing VP Matthew Weisinger, then two of Epic's expert witnesses, and then you can check out their follow-up posts on The Verge. Highly recommend checking out those posts where they're summarizing things, and I think they also did a podcast where they talked about last week as well. Couldn't do this without... Folks like Ms. Robertson, Tom Warren, The Verge, Nick Stat, other folks that you have seen already referenced in this series doing the hard work of listening to the trial every day and live tweeting it in the fashion that we have looked at. Now, before we get started on substance here, I want to warn you of a couple things. One, we get through Weisinger and we get through one witness, but not even the cross-examination. So day six was a bit of a slog. Mondays, right? And Mondays are the same all around, including in the federal court system. So things are just a little bit weird yesterday. We've skipped a lot of the tweets and a lot of the avenues of questioning. And I'll talk about why when we kind of get to the areas that they were happening in. But a lot of it seemed like wasted time, like wheel spinning. There's a lot of questions about what the various creative modes in Fortnite are, how Fortnite runs, what a V-Buck is, all of these various things that don't really go towards answering the question of whether Apple is engaged in anti-competitive monopolistic practices. Because now we're in week two, we're in the Empire Strikes Back of the trial, and we're not at the beginning, and we're not really at the summation. So you're starting to get a bunch of extra information that will ultimately be used, at least in part, in final statements and final documents that go before the judge to help her make a decision on all of this, but it's a little bit difficult to see exactly how each piece lines up. And to be frank, as we will see as part of this video, a number of the pieces don't line up so well. They're just digressions and asides. And this is why trials and court cases take as long as they do. Lawyers like to hear themselves talk. Obviously, I'm talking to you right now here in virtual legality. And sometimes you just start asking questions that you don't really even know where they're going to wind up. But Let's talk about Matthew Weisinger. He's in charge of marketing for Epic. So when he's talking, we get things like, we're on with Weisinger talking about Epic's work running promotions now, including big Microsoft Sony crossovers with characters like Master Chief and Kratos, which Weisinger describes as the Mickey Mouse of PlayStation and Xbox. And I think that says something about video gaming. This is an aside of my own. Master Chief and Kratos, pretty violent dudes. A lot of shooting things. Kratos especially. And Kratos is kind of lightened up, I guess, a little bit 
in old age. I would never equate them with Mickey Mouse, but I don't know what I would for video gaming. Certainly Nintendo has Mario, the Mickey Mouse of Nintendo, but there was a time when we had things like Crash Bandicoot be the overall mainstay of things like PlayStation. I think they're actually right to describe Master Chief and Kratos this way, but, uh, you know, Kratos, what can I say? Let's move on. How was Epic from a marketing perspective? And I think actually Ms. Robertson, who's doing this very fast and there's no blame to go around here. I believe this was actually referring to Apple because this is questioning of the Epic marketing person and saying, how was Apple to work with? I felt like it was transactional, impersonal. It always felt like in some sense it was fly by night. There were strings attached or caveats attached. These requests would come in late in the process. Weisinger says it was a different experience from the console partners and Apple support was opportunistic. Epic's team would scramble to work with late requests. It was around opportunities when they had something else in their ecosystem to promote, Weisinger says of Apple's cross-promotion, i.e. Apple Music collaborations around the Fortnite Marshmallow and Travis Scott concerts. So we get essentially the reverse of what we were seeing at the end of last week, which is now you've got an Epic person testifying, being asked questions, and throwing what I described as corporate shade over Apple now. Look, Apple says they deserve their 30%, but Apple is cold and calculating. We've already put up developers that have all these negative indications about how Apple feels about them. And when we worked with them, sure, they worked with us a lot. Obviously, we were making them a lot of money, but it always felt transactional and impersonal. Why? Well, because Apple doesn't have that nice touch. Now, does that matter from a legal perspective? No, probably not. And in fact, the judge jumps in as part of this question and says, well, weren't the Sony and PlayStation relationships also transactional? They didn't give you Kratos out of the goodness of their heart. They were promoting their products, weren't they? Whenever you did collaborations with them, how is it different that Apple is trying to benefit both? Well, it just seemed opportunistic, the times they wanted to support us. It was around content and in the other parts of the business, rather than helping to support the, biz- the Fortnite business. The gist of Weisinger's argument, this is Ms. Robertson speaking now, is that Apple was focused on promoting services that weren't mutually beneficial with Epic, i.e. attracting consumers who may not be looking for gaming apps. And now that's interesting in and of itself because, of course, Tim Sweeney got up here in court and testified as to Fortnite not being limited to games, that he wants it to be a metaverse of experiences and creative collaborations. And that's one of the reasons why the Fortnite case here is against the entire app store and all applications and opening up the whole thing and not just aimed at a gaming question. And as we'll see as part of this questioning in yesterday's testimony, there is a big argument over what, again, games are, what Fortnite is, what creative mode in Fortnite is. And we're not getting any answers in today's video. We aren't getting any answers last week. We aren't probably getting any answers throughout the rest of this trial on what a game is and what Fortnite is and what Roblox is and what everything else is, we might get some kind of clarity when the judge finally issues her opinion. But even then, it's all a little amorphous. And really, I'm not even positive that either the Epic or the Apple side understands exactly why they're fighting on one specific direction or the other. Epic wants it to be a broad decision at the end. And so is fighting that Fortnite is bigger than just games, but also not, and that when Apple talks to them, it was really about expanding Fortnite and only about things that they could cross-promote and not just games. And so you get into this muddy mire when you're talking about these questions. And unfortunately, yesterday, day six, was all of this, just muddiness, ambiguity. This is an email between Apple and Epic. Apple senders requesting assets promoting Chapter 2 launch says, I know we've had issues in the past with a significant art leak, but he promises it won't happen again. Spoiler, Apple apparently did leak the Chapter 2 assets. Is there a platform on which Fortnite has the biggest growth potential? Mobile. Why? We've reached pretty much full penetration on console and everybody has a mobile device. Well, not everybody has a console and not everybody has a gaming PC. And that's a useful answer on Epic's side, right? Both of these are kind of useful because you're trying to establish that Apple maybe isn't the cleanest partner, maybe isn't earning its 30%, is a little cold and calculating. Developers don't like it. We'll see that come up again towards the end of this video. And also, we really need to break into mobile. This is a fight that's worth having from Epic's side because we don't view them as competitive ecosystems. We view this as something new, that a mobile device is something different from a console, and we view it that way internally. And so when you're evaluating, Judge, whether or not these markets actually do cross over and overlap and all these various things that will matter in determining whether an antitrust 
action is legitimate. Understand that Epic, from a business perspective, not in front of you, Judge, we've looked at it and said mobile is different. We're not seeing that crossover. And we can talk about the numbers that relate to all of that. So I think it's a pretty effective way of Epic trying to get in there again and establish that these markets are different, which they will, of course, try to do with much more dry expert witness testimony throughout the course of this next week. Weisinger on consoles, which are sold at a loss. They make their money back when Fortnite and other apps have sold on those platforms. They're only making money when we are making money, and they are aligned and invested in securing the success of the titles on their platforms. You contrast this with Apple, they actually generate profit on their hardware sales. Now, the interesting part about this, we've seen this fight come up again and again and again, and we talked about the fact that the preliminary injunction says, well, the business model really doesn't matter for purposes of the Sherman Antitrust Act. At least it hasn't historically, and you're asking us to interpret it a little bit differently than it has historically. And we've pointed out that that's always a high hill to climb uh, when you are a plaintiff in an action like this, that the actual description that Weisinger is trying to get to, that Epic is trying to get to, that the console manufacturers, because they sell their hardware at a loss, are only making money when we're making money and are aligned and invested in securing the success of the titles on their platforms, doesn't appear to not be the case with the apples of the world. And this is the problem. This is why the business model really hasn't mattered from an antitrust perspective in terms of selling hardware and things like that. Because Apple can sell its phone for $1,000 while Sony sells its console for $500. And maybe Sony doesn't get that $500 that it would have been thrilled to get selling the hardware. But after that point in time, both are incentivized to keep their ecosystems up, to keep their walled garden well tilled, and they make money based on sales. Apple makes 30% of those V-Bucks sales, and Sony makes 30% of those V-Bucks sales. And if you're Epic, you don't really have a say in how another company runs their business model, and it doesn't really make somebody more monopolistic that they were able to convince the marketplace that their hardware was more valuable than another party's. And so you really do have this logic gap here. And it'll be interesting to see whether the judge winds up buying into it when she has already expressed certain concerns that that's not the way that the Sherman Antitrust Act actually operates. And it is the major distinguishing point that Epic keeps trying to establish that this is a separate market because of this business model. And also judge, if you're worried that a decision here will affect things like the Xbox and the PlayStation, don't be because you can limit your decision solely to this particular business model concept and not have it apply to special purpose operating systems operating on special purpose hardware sold at a loss. One of the problems, of course, is that Epic hasn't actually presented documentation, at least as the court seems to think it is, that evidences all of those subsidized hardware sales. And that might actually be something that pops up later on. We're getting cross-examination now from Apple's lawyer talking about the business model of Xbox, PlayStation, and Switch. Have you ever seen any internal documents that prove to you that consoles are sold at a loss? I have not. Apple's lawyer hammering on Weisinger's lack of first-person knowledge that consoles are sold at a loss. Xbox's Lori Wright had testified that this is true of the Xbox, but Apple has moved to strike her testimony, actually to find it non-credible, saying it's not credible, as she continues here uh, with her tweet, because... Xbox was asked to produce profit and loss statements talking about hardware sales and effectively refused to do so. Unclear exactly whether something accidental happened there or whether Xbox decided just not to turn it over. Always an interesting question when you're talking about federal litigation. And then we get into one of these blind alley asides, which is interesting. It's the reason why Peely is on the thumbnail to this video, but it probably doesn't matter at all to the legal case. Mondays, Apple Lawyer. We have a large yellow banana here in a tuxedo. Weisinger, yes, that's Peely. Apple, light paraphrase, and in the tuxedo, he's known as Agent Peely. We thought it was better to go with the suit instead of the naked banana because we are in federal court right now, which sounds like a lawyer making a joke, as The Verge points out. But as we talked about last week, Apple had just been hitting Epic Games for allowing the Itch.io store app in the Epic Games store, which itself, at Itch.io, has a separate place for, I think, what they call sensitive content that Apple was trying to suggest Epic might bring to their phone when Apple doesn't want that kind of content on their phone. Now, Epic's attorney comes back and actually defends this. A little bit of a digression. We talked about Peely, our banana. Remember that? I do. And there might have been an implication that to show Peely without a suit would have been inappropriate. Do you recall that? Yes. Is there anything inappropriate about Peely without a suit? No, there is not. If we could just put on the screen a picture of Peely, is there anything inappropriate about Peely without clothes? It's just a banana, ma'am. Yep, 
This is federal testimony. And thank you once again for The Verge actually transcribing some of this testimony so we can get the flavor of this. But this kind of tells you how Monday went. We go in, Apple makes what essentially is a snide joke about not showing an unclothed banana in federal court. And Epic comes back and actually has a couple of questions saying there's nothing wrong with a naked Peely, a naked banana. Uh, And of course, I think I have videos in this series that have an Apple versus a banana because it's a very useful kind of shorthand for Epic versus Apple on the whole. But does it mean anything legally? Nope. Whether Agent Peely is wearing clothes or not really doesn't have any legal impact. Okay, here we are. Lawyer is introducing various creative modes and asking Weisinger whether they're games or not. Weisinger says they are indeed games. And they've got videos, and they've got screaming, and they've got music videos, and things along those lines. Lawyer, if anyone was to state that creative mode had no competitive gameplay, that would be inaccurate, correct? Weisinger concedes that's true. Apple's lawyer asking if Weisinger ever heard people at Epic say they were failing to attract, retain more iOS users because of Apple's 30% cut. Weisinger says he wasn't party to a conversation like that as far as he remembers. And before we get onto the actual 30% cut point, I want to go back a step to talk about this creative mode stuff and the fact that they discuss all of these modes and all of these kinds of things. As we said at the start of today's testimony, there is an overall thrust as to what Fortnite is and what Fortnite is as a game versus its creative mode versus its concerts versus parachute drops versus all these various other things that are brought up in court with Epic essentially trying to argue that there are aspects of it that are purely creative and bigger and Apple arguing that most of not all of this stuff has gameplay elements in it. And it seems to be trying to establish that Fortnite is a game first and foremost. And it's unclear exactly what the impact of this questioning is intended to be. Certainly there is that notion of what is the competitive market, the narrowing of what this discussion is from an antitrust perspective. There is also the Roblox question. As we talked about last week, why is Roblox allowed in the store when they do sell additional quote-unquote experiences according to Apple and whether or not that's the same kind of thing that Fortnite does. So I think all of these kind of combine into this stew that I'm very hopeful at some point Apple and probably Epic will start to untangle for us to explain exactly where they're coming from. Otherwise, I don't know exactly what the purposes of all this questioning is with respect to what Fortnite is, except to point out that Fortnite has a bunch of stuff in it that isn't specifically a competitive game, such as actually creating things in create mode, and that Apple is trying to establish that they allow Fortnite and they allow Roblox under the same kind of rubric, and Epic should be okay with that. It's a little unclear, and it will be interesting to see where it goes, because I don't think either Apple or Epic was terribly clear at what they were trying to establish there, except, of course, for the clarity involved in Agent Peely's outfits. Again, getting back to the 30% cut, we see that they claim there was never a discussion. As the VP of Marketing, you've never discussed it, correct? And that strikes me as probably a little bit not disingenuous exactly, but unlikely. Of course, you can only testify to what you remember and you have never discussed whether your marketing efforts would be more effective or successful if Epic could distribute iOS apps outside of the app store is probably best read as I wasn't involved in Project Liberty discussions. We've seen in the Project Liberty documentation that Epic was very focused on breaking the 30% cut. They very much didn't want it to apply to augmented reality, which is apparently something that they're focused on in the future for Fortnite and their metaverse dreams, and that this was a long-term effort to kind of get around that 30% amount. Citing another email, do you know how long it would take to make a build of Fortnite that would function on Google Play that would only support our own payment methods, referring to Epic's payment method, which it added to iOS and got summarily banned for? We're going over a Project Liberty strategy to draw Google into a legal battle over antitrust in addition to Apple. If Google makes a big deal out of Epic using its own payment method, the battle begins. It's going to be fun. And you get kind of the tone of Epic. And this tone has been persistent since last August and probably earlier before I was paying nearly as much attention to Tim Sweeney and Epic as a company that has this notion of Project Liberty is us being rogue wildcards and we're going to breach this contract and we're going to suck Google and Apple into a federal lawsuit. It's going to be fun. You're going to see fireworks and we're looking forward to it. So what Apple is trying to do now with Mr. Weisinger is trying to establish, again, that kind of corporate shade concept. Project Liberty, you guys being crazy, right? 
You've got, it's going to be fun. You're doing this thing deliberately. You're helping manifest what is a significant problem and a breach of everybody's contracts when, as this court has said, you don't need to do that to bring this case. You don't need to be in breach. You could have brought this case from the first instance. We're going to go over Project Liberty's goal of making Epic seem sympathetic by, among other things, helping establish the Coalition for App Fairness. There's a consulting firm document for the Coalition for App Fairness noting that consultants will help to establish a reason for it to exist, either organic or manufactured. Apple versus uh, Epic disagree over which side Fortnite's ban falls on. Of course they do. Does the Fortnite ban equal an organic problem for the Coalition for App Fairness to address, or is it manufactured? And of course, the court has already said this is an issue of Epic's own making, that the actual ban of Fortnite, the fact that people on iOS can't play Fortnite right now as this trial is ongoing, is Epic's fault. That Epic could have not been in breach, could have still brought this legal claim. And so at least at some level, it's manufactured by Epic. Of course, Epic's response to something like that is, well, these contracts are illegal. So what manufactured this problem is a contractual restraint that should never have existed. So Apple manufactured it. Either way, it's now organic because we're in a live fight about significant legal issues. Now, I've talked at length in this series about the Coalition for App Fairness, how it's clearly a mirror image of this case that Epic has brought, how it is probably more effectively aimed at things like state and other international jurisdictions, legislatures to actually see laws change rather than to bring a Sherman Antitrust Act claim here. And ultimately, Epic having a lot of money might be bringing this lawsuit on the understanding that they have a very low chance of success under existing antitrust jurisprudence, but using it as a marketing platform with which to establish how the Coalition for App Fairness is going to go into legislatures and explain what the problem is now with a court case saying that Apple, the evil empire, can't be defeated. I can't argue with the strategy here. I can say that I don't like using federal law in this way when it's not historically been viewed this way, but Epic's got a plan and clearly they've had a plan for a significantly long time. We're continuing to talk about Project Liberty. Apple lawyer hitting on the fact that it was a coordinated effort with a virtual war room designed to provoke Apple, establishing whether there were communications to console partners about Project Liberty. That includes communications about the impending price drop on V-Bucks per strategy document. Of course, we have seen that. We saw what Tim Sweeney went out with in early August, just a little while before the mega drop. Hey, Phil, talking to Phil Spencer at Xbox. Long ago, we talked optimistically about the possibility of subscription-free multiplayer on Xbox. If that is coming, please consider the timing of the program to support Fortnite Season 14 on August 27th. This launch will follow the confidential Fortnite Mega Drop 20% price drop that's coming in mid-August. They told them about the price drop coming. And then, because Mr. Sweeney likes to kind of hint at things, Epic has certain plans for August that will provide an extraordinary opportunity to highlight the value proposition of consoles and PCs in contrast to mobile platforms and to onboard new console users. While I can't share details with any third party at this point, I give you Epic's assurance that our efforts will be positive and supportive of Microsoft, Xbox, and Windows. Now, the interesting thing about that paragraph and where you get into trouble when you're communicating things like this to third parties is that this is highly suggestive of the fact that if there's a problem with Fortnite on iOS, then it's going to establish the value of things like the Microsoft Xbox, indicating that, at least as far as Tim Sweeney was concerned when he sent this email, Xbox represented a good substitute for players to find Fortnite on, which isn't a great thing to go out there on a federal law basis. Apple's going after the fact that Epic referred to the price drop as a lock-in tactic. Epic says it just means trying to make Fortnite more attractive, not make it difficult to leave. You would not use the term lock-in if you saw anything wrong with it, would you? The lawyer asks. Notes Weisinger went to MIT. He originally said Harvard incorrectly. And this, I actually think, is one of the hidden gems in yesterday's testimony. Apple, going after the fact that Epic, while talking about the price drop, referred to it as a lock-in tactic to get more people into the Fortnite ecosystem, enjoying purchasing V-Bucks, enjoying Fortnite. Epic says... It just means trying to make Fortnite more attractive, not making it difficult to leave. Understand, you go to the opening slides, you go to their opening statements, you go to what Epic has said about Apple throughout really all of the first six days of testimony is that Apple had a plan and they highlight references to things like stickiness and lock-in and to lock-in developers and consumers into their ecosystem. So if you actually have testimony from Epic saying, well, when we say lock-in, we just meant to make Fortnite more attractive, not make it difficult to leave, that's exactly what Apple is going to wind up saying. And Apple did say 
in their opening statements. It would surprise me if this particular quote, however it looked in the testimony itself, doesn't make its way into Apple's final summations and final documents because you've got Epic right here saying, okay, you think we had a plan. Judge, our plan was to make the Apple ecosystem more attractive, more attractive to consumers, more attractive to developers, more attractive to partners, not make it difficult to leave. And if you doubt our intentions there, understand Epic said exactly that same thing when they talked about their very own lock-in tactic, Your Honor. And so this is actually one of those kind of hidden bits that I wanted to flag because I think it's a very useful kind of moment for Apple in talking about these kinds of things because there's nothing wrong with once you've got and spent the money on user acquisition, trying to make sure that user retention is a high stat for your company. Where it's wrong is if you do things that are illegal, you go above and beyond and strike out at competitors and things along those lines. But one of Epic's real hurdles in this case has always been that Apple didn't change its 30% cut, didn't change its IAP rules, didn't change its store rules. Usually you see a litigation like this when Apple, with stickiness from their market, then says, oh, actually now the cut's 50-50. Sorry, you're stuck. And then you bring a lawsuit because you say, okay, you created this, you stuck it out, and now you're seizing monopoly profits. When Apple said, we started at 30%, we didn't move anything. What is this even about? And it's about Epic trying to get out of that cut. More power to them. Don't blame any of the developers for trying to get out of that cut or trying to get out of Apple's system of app review. Don't blame them. But it's a difficult case to win. Judge asks, how much of Party Royale is games? Is there a percentage, like 50-50? Weisinger says it can depend on events like concerts. Judge notes the concerts are only around 15 minutes. So you don't have any way to quantify games versus experience? Not offhand. Weisinger suggests that Epic does have documents indicating the proportion of games versus experiences in Party Royale, but it doesn't seem like we're going to get to see them, sadly. Uh, So, yeah, we again are kind of stuck in what is Party Royale, what is creative mode, is it a game, is it an application, is it a storefront, I would guess, to go with the Roblox question, but we're not really getting any solid answers from Mr. Weisinger. And then we proceed to our second witness who, again, as I said at the top of this video, doesn't get cross-examined yesterday. So we don't actually have Apple poking any holes. We have Epic presenting its case. And before we get started here, there's some important things to remember. If you haven't been to law school, if you haven't looked at any of these things before, this is what we're going to get into for, I would guess, the bulk of the rest of this week. Uh, It depends on what the witness list is. It depends on what Apple brings. It depends on how long this takes. But it When I say this, I'm referring to what a lot of folks would call the battle of the experts, especially in economics questions that are as squishy as antitrust law. What you've got is a claim that is very gray area. Epic's got an argument to make. Absolutely, they do. Apple's got an argument to make as well, and an argument that matches up a little bit better with historical precedents. Either way, you've got thousands of economists and various people that are invested in the antitrust litigation community that are willing to come out and give you expertise on whatever your position is. And because of that large ecosystem, you're always going to be able on either side of the question, Epic or Apple, to bring some experts that are going to back you up. So you're going to have what's called this battle of the experts. You're going to have Epic bringing their guy. You're going to have Apple trying to poke holes in that testimony. You're going to have Apple bringing their guy and Epic trying to poke holes in that testimony. So with that being said, this is David Evans, chairman of the Global Economics Group, who is Epic's first expert witness. And you can go, you can check out his testimony. I will link it here in the description to the video. It's very dry. It's an economic expert testimony. But suffice it to say, he believes that the relevant markets here are the OS distribution, the App Store access, and the IAP, the in-app payment processing. And he refers to these things as Epic would have them referred to as separate markets and specifically the entire app purchasing concept as an aftermarket to the foremarket of the actual sale of the phone and the OS that's running that phone. Evans is here to establish the relevant market in this case, which to oversimplify as a non-lawyer is Epic trying to establish that iOS can be a discrete market that Apple can have a monopoly in rather than just a device that it makes. And I think the parenthetical is very accurate here as a non-lawyer. That's not exactly what he's here to do. There really is no question that Apple has a monopoly power over access to both its iOS and to its app store and to its in-app payment processing. 
So it is a monopolist provider of that. The relevant is doing work from a legal perspective. Is that useful for purposes of the law? And the law, antitrust in general, starts evaluating these things. Hey, especially in a single brand context, is this such a special market that it should get, should it be afforded legal protections? And that's one of the things that Epic is going to have to fight against is that in general, the baseline rule, if nothing else is happening, is that a a person that makes something, obviously a monopolist of that thing that they made, but we don't consider single brand markets in most instances to be monopolistic for purposes of evaluating antitrust restrictions because otherwise it would be everybody anywhere that has and has created a single item. We've talked about this in this space that, hey, I'm a monopolist provider of virtual legality videos, but that doesn't mean that the law should treat me as a monopolist provider because that would be silly because everybody is a monopolist provider of the thing that they do. And we're going to talk about exactly how the preliminary injunction talks about this when we get to aftermarkets. Uh, in just a second. But that's what's at stake here is not that Apple really controls access, but that it's a relevant market for purposes of the law. And Evans is trying to say that it is due to certain things that he believes. A consumer who is interested in using apps at various times in various places during the course of their lives, there are many, many situations in which the game console, even if it had the relevant app on it, is simply not a relevant device for them to use in their daily lives. Again, this matters. Ms. Robertson paraphrasing, because to Evans, it means that console ecosystems can't be considered direct competitors to iOS. And indeed, nobody would confuse an Xbox with an iPhone. But the law isn't just concerned with what is a specifically a direct competitor. This thing can do everything that your phone can do. It's concerned with substitutes. Is somebody that's playing Fortnite on the iPhone also going to play it on the Xbox or the Switch or their PC or wherever? And if they are, is there fluidity there? Is the market, is the relevant market actually broader than what Epic is just trying to describe it as? Because Epic has made it very narrow and the defendant in any antitrust case is going to try to make it very broad because the broader the market, the smaller amount that we can control it. Any defendant can control it in any market. They try to narrow it to what the defendant controls. It makes sense. That's how these litigations go. And they've brought an expert to try to establish that the relevant market is what Apple controls. The distinction between general purpose and special purpose operating system has come up again. Evan says there's a fundamental difference between them. You may recall this from day three. And indeed, there's a difference between an operating system for an Xbox and an iPhone. There's a difference between what these devices are intended to do, their primary focus. But you'll note this is stealing a base a little bit because we're not really talking about the OS. We're not really talking about the phones versus the consoles. We're talking about the marketplace for the applications. And the applications might be distinct as a market from what is happening at the OS level. In fact, Epic's argument is pretty dependent on them being distinct, that there is this kind of aftermarket concept. Judge then is also talking about subsidies, says, you've seen no evidence from Sony, no evidence from Nintendo that they sell at a loss. Evans hedges. Judge, I don't know if this is based on a generic understanding of what's out there or if I'm going to be able to verify this theory I've heard multiple times. And the judge is signaling here, Epic, look, if you want me at all to adjudge this based on business model, you're going to have to present some documents that establish the business model difference. And if it is as obvious as your expert says, as Lori Wright at Microsoft says, shouldn't be that difficult to send me some documents on this score. It's a little unclear why those documents aren't in the judge's hands already, except that this is very important information to the Sonys and Microsofts and Nintendos of the world. You've already seen leaks from the court and Epic doesn't have it at their fingertips. Might be a kind of question that winds up in significant trouble if the judge can't get any documentation that she can base her judgment on with respect to that subsidy. Now we're going to talk about what I think is Epic's best argument. Evans is going to explain the difference between a foremarket and an aftermarket. A foremarket would be buying a printer, for instance, while an aftermarket is a purchase made after that initial buy, like toner for that printer. And this was important. We've talked about this in this space, but you don't have to have a monopoly in selling the printer. You can have a very small percentage of the market in selling the printer. Apple doesn't have to be a part of a duopoly with Google and Android for this particular theory to work. They just have to have full control over their aftermarket. And what Epic is trying to say here is that you buy the phone and that's your purchase with Apple. That's the initial purchase. And then the actual purchase of apps, buying things through an app store, is an aftermarket. And Apple is a monopolist provider of that aftermarket access. And we do actually have 
hardware precedents, such as printers and toners, that talk about the fact that you can be a monopolist, even though you don't have monopoly power in the overall market. The smartphone is the foremarket here. The apps are the aftermarket, Evan says. Basically, the allegation is that Apple is using the foremarket to monopolize the aftermarket. Or more specifically, that the foremarket doesn't matter as much when they have a monopoly power over an aftermarket. And we talked about this. I did a video that said this was Epic's strongest case yet. They added the aftermarket concept kind of midway through the arguments about the preliminary injunction. I looked at that and I said, hey, that's that's got some legs to it. Now, Apple can defend against it, can say, no, no, no. The App Store isn't an aftermarket. It's a holistic product. When we sell an iPhone, we're not just selling you a blank brick. That couldn't sell. We're selling you everything that the OS has to offer, including the App Store. That's why you get invested in it. And so we could argue that. But Apple didn't argue that. If we go back and we look at the preliminary injunction document itself, we can see the judge talk about this issue. She says the following. Epic Games' relevant market definition, that iOS app distribution is an aftermarket of the smartphone OS market is plausible. Remember, this is the preliminary injunction document. Her job is to look at things as presented by the two parties and effectively assume they're true in order to determine what kind of injunction should issue from the court before the trial. This is last fall. But note this footnote. And as I've often said, when you're reading your own court documents, footnotes are often where the fun lives because they judges let loose a little bit. Apple fails to respond adequately to the aftermarket theory, devoting a single paragraph to it and stating in a conclusory fashion that this is not an aftermarket case. Should Epic Games continue to assert this theory, as we see yesterday in their testimony, Apple should explain why switching in information costs do not render the iOS app distribution market distinct. Silence can be interpreted as an admission. And we pointed this out when we were analyzing these documents that Apple comes out and basically says against what I had determined was Epic's strongest argument that, no, no, judge, it's not that kind of case and does nothing else. And I said, oh, that's a foot fault. That's shooting yourself in the foot, Apple. You're doing that wrong. And sure enough, the judge comes out and says exactly that. Now, she actually continues and talks about this a little bit. I want to bring it up because I think it's useful in terms of context for what this economic expert is saying. However... In some ways, Epic Games offers a fail-safe definition by restricting the market so narrowly. By definition, Epic Games' proposed market definition excludes other smartphone systems, including the Google Android system, as well as video game platforms and their digital distribution markets. Courts have expressly cautioned against such a narrowing of the relevant market definition. Quoting a case, DuPont, a retail seller may have in one sense a monopoly on certain trade because of location, or because no one else makes a product of just the quality or attractiveness of his product. Thus, one can theorize that we have monopolistic competition in every non-standardized commodity with each manufacturer having power over the price and production of his own product. However, illegal power must be appraised in terms of the competitive market for the product. And then quoting Sistar, manufacturers' own products do not themselves comprise a relevant product market. And that's what these parties are arguing about. That's your historical precedence, that it's very difficult for a court to find that Apple deciding to design and make a phone with these particular restrictions, with this particular OS, with this particular app store is acting monopolistically because to do so is to suggest that everybody with a non-standard commodity, virtual legality videos, is a monopolist in the price and production of their own product. So you've got two things that the judge says here, Epic, you got to really focus on whether this is a legitimate market. And their expert is trying to do that yesterday. And Apple, you owe me an explanation because they've said it's an aftermarket. Might not be, but you didn't respond to it at all. So you better get off your high horse and explain to me why it's not an aftermarket. And note what she says, switching and information costs, stickiness can help make that aftermarket an aftermarket. If you're not going to be particularly inclined at the consumer level to switch between Apple as an ecosystem and Android or any other competitor that might appear in the mobile space, then that very stickiness can be used to justify the existence and interpretation of an aftermarket. It's, an, it's one of Epic's better arguments, and Apple hasn't issued a defense against it at all as of yet. Switching between ecosystems isn't much of a competitive constraint on the iOS app market, no surprise, right? They've got Evan saying what he needs to say here. Epic is questioning him, of course. They know exactly what the judge said at the preliminary injunction level. They know the rules around aftermarket cases in general, which are fairly rare, it should be noted. 
And they are saying exactly what they need to say. There is stickiness. There are costs between switching at the overall level and that's making an aftermarket an aftermarket. That's sort of the crux of it, as Ms. Robertson says, the claim that Apple has this market where it doesn't have to respond to normal market forces. Judge asks about the duopoly market, the Apple and Android markets at the iPhone iOS level. It looks like, according to your chart, there are a number of players in 2009. When did you say that Android and iOS had antitrust market share in your view? Evans, it really shifted significantly by 2010. And this is an interesting line of questioning that the judge is asking because one of the issues with Epic's theory is if you control access to this thing, you're a monopolist. If you charge 30%, you're a, a restraining trade. If you're preventing others from opening stores, you're similarly restraining trade. There is no indication that the actual size of the quote unquote for market actually controls that overall theory of the case. That Apple at the day of creation, when it had however many apps it had, was a monopolist in that access. So here, Epic and their expert is actually making a slightly different case that the foremarket is important to establishing the aftermarket. And it's only when the foremarket share of Apple becomes a duopoly with Google in 2010 or so that we have a monopoly problem. Now, the problem with that theory, as we've talked about in virtual legality, is that monopoly itself is not illegal. You have to do something illegal to either gather monopoly power, to retain monopoly power, or to illegally restrain trade from that position. And so if Apple was a monopolist from when it started the iPhone, but only became a problem for antitrust purposes in 2010, it is significant that they didn't change their policies on these bases, the 30% cut and the access to another app store and those kinds of things for purposes of this question. It'll be interesting to see in today's testimony what Apple does to poke holes in this expertise because I do think this is a good expert. I do think the aftermarket is a very strong argument on Epic's behalf, but I don't have any idea what Apple is planning to defend with on this score. Certainly the time frames here are very interesting because Apple fundamentally, hasn't really changed how it's operated for a very, very long time. Evans is back after a break, and the lawyer is asking how he defines the market and alternatives here. Evan notes the costs of switching ecosystems to Android are high, PC consoles aren't a substitute, and Apple's policies prevent the existence of iOS app store alternatives. So this is a claim, right? And you can certainly make this claim. This is an expert saying PC consoles aren't a substitute, but certainly Apple will come back as they have been throughout the first six days of testimony and suggest that they are, that Tim Sweeney sending an email saying this is going to show the value of Xbox is important kind of as a concept that Lori Wright's testimony about what Xbox can actually do and how they are distinguishing between their Windows and their Xbox platforms and how that established how the pricing was acceptable is something that's important to this kind of conversation. And so I would expect Apple to hit where we have seen before but we don't know what that is because we haven't gotten to cross. Evan concludes that this case is about a single brand market. The only two possible choices for apps here are iOS and Android, and Android isn't a sufficient substitute because you can't use Android apps on iOS and there's a high, tough to evaluate cost in adoption, he says. Apple's claim is the opposite, obviously. It says single brand markets are extremely rare and Apple can't have a monopoly on iOS the same way that like Twitter doesn't have a monopoly on tweets. And that's a little bit quick, but again, non-lawyer, don't blame her for describing it that way at all. The notion is, is that a single brand market, as we saw described in the actual preliminary injunction, is rare because it would affect everything. And so you have to have a very specific set of circumstances in terms of stickiness, in terms of what you are trying to do to establish that this market is one that you have an illegal monopoly in rather than just being by point of fact, the de facto only one that can make an iPhone and the only one that can make an iOS because you created it. You have rights in it. That's how copyright, that's how patent, that's how other intellectual property protections work. And so that's an open question and whether or not that's something that the court will ultimately find as a monopoly is at the heart of the first threshold question of this case. If Epic loses on Apple actually having a relevant market monopoly, it's going to lose really the rest of everything that it's arguing. If it wins that, it still has to prove illegal activity and we move essentially to the secondary question at the heart of the case. Then we get into kind of shading, of course. Apple's profit margin was vastly higher than the benchmark group of companies this expert used, including even the most successful ones, comparing to markets like eBay, Rakuten, and Alibaba which are also digital marketplaces that don't directly make stuff, I think is the justification. Editorial from Ms. Robertson. And yes, you can see how experts work. 
right? eBay, Rakuten, and Alibaba aren't very good kind of substitute comparatives to Apple. They're not in the same market. They're not doing the same function. They're not performing the same services. And you can kind of see exactly how experts can say what they want to say. You can argue that they're digital, that they're information technology companies. You can do that kind of thing. But a judge or a jury, if this were a jury trial, would evaluate the credibility of this expert's testimony against Apple's expert and whatever they say, and which seems to be a closer representation of reality. Certainly here, Apple's profit margin doesn't actually matter fundamentally. And this is one of those issues in the case that I think is lost a little bit among non-lawyers and people that are just following it. Apple's allowed to make a ton of money on their product and brand goodwill can make you a ton of money on your product. This is not required to be the minimum margin that you can possibly ever achieve on something like this. You don't have to be castigated by the court or by the law or by antitrust in general for making a high margin. We see this very much in consumer luxury items. And maybe Apple is going to argue that they're a luxury good where you see specific watches or specific jewelry make a lot higher margin for effectively the same good because of the name associated with it, because of the color of the box it comes in when you give it as a gift. That's brand goodwill. That's value specifically just in the trademark, just in the picture of the Apple on the back. And everybody, whether they love Apple or they hate them, would point out that people pay extra for that Apple on the back. So the margin here is not exactly as obvious of an answer that you might think, oh, Apple's making a ton of money. Maybe that's too much and it should be brought down. People buy Apple in part as a consumer luxury good. And that's not going to change either before or after this case. Evans pulls up a 2017 Apple developer survey. That's important. This is from the developers about performance of the app store. Slide refers to satisfaction with discoverability of apps. 36% indicated somewhat or very satisfied, which means the others weren't. And that's important. Developers are business partners of Apple and developers, at least at some level, appear to be unhappy with the way the App Store performs. Some of that is just volume. The App Store has a ridiculous number of apps come into it and discoverability is always going to be an issue that Apple is trying to solve, that Valve and Steam are going to try to solve. I don't know if you've been on the PlayStation Store, but its discoverability is god-awful, that Sony is either trying to solve or has just decided to ignore for its entire history, that you're always going to have a certain subset of people that are making products to go on a digital storefront that are going to be unhappy with the way that you run it. And certainly, I think it's useful to understand that people are, as developers, unhappy at some level with what Apple is doing. But is that illegal? No, it's just a additional piece of evidence that Apple isn't earning its 30% cut. Epic is trying to establish here that Apple isn't doing what it should be doing to satisfy developers. And if developers could leave, they would. But Epic says your billion viewers is too much. And Apple says, well, that was what we bought. That's what we paid for. That's what we got our marketing dollars operating for. That's why we have conferences. That's why we get people into the ecosystem and you're paying for access to that audience. And whether or not that's antitrust is ultimately going to be one of the questions that the judge has to answer at the end of this case. Judges stepping in to clarify whether there's really no alternative to using Apple for in-app purchases when you can go to the web and make IAP that way. Evan says he's specifically referring to stuff happening inside iOS apps. Judge still seems dubious that you're really locked into Apple processing for IAPs if you can go to the web and buy them. Now, this is an interesting line of questioning. The judge has consistently asked questions like this throughout the first week of the court case, which is, okay, am I really not permitted to have a substitute if I can go buy V-Bucks directly from Epic? And also asking Tim Sweeney, I think directly it was, I think it was Mr. Sweeney, hey, why didn't you offer V-Bucks directly before all of this nonsense happened in the end of last year? Saying, well, it wasn't attractive to the consumer. And so I think the judge is looking at this and saying, well, that's certainly a substitute methodology of getting these things, of buying them and buying them without the Apple cut. And then Apple is supporting them on their ecosystem. One interesting possibility that arises out of this is the judge effectively giving a total win to Apple, but but restricting Apple's ability to uh, restrict itself information that is within the app talking about other methods for, for buying things. Um, and again, that might or might not fly. It depends really on a whole host of things that will happen as part of the case determination by this judge. But you could, if you were trying to at least split the baby a little bit, say, Apple, you can't prohibit people from telling people they can buy it on the web, but you don't have to allow them to do anything else. 
And then, you know, what happens to your app store? Effectively, you would assume every developer will say, okay, you can come over to this browser, you can come over to this website, you can come over to the Epic Game Store maybe, and you can buy it over there and then bring it back over here. And Apple might be protected by saying, well, you know, the friction is going to keep most people in the ecosystem, but certainly for saving money, they can go out and and go elsewhere. Um, And it would be interesting to see if the judge wound up with that because Epic's primary argument about these two points that the judge raises is that Apple prohibits you from saying you can go buy it elsewhere, which we've talked about as equivalent to Best Buy preventing you from putting a sticker on your box that says you can buy it cheaper on the website. But it might be different for things that are inside the box. It might be different that the judge says, hey, maybe we can get rid of that restriction while still not blowing up the ecosystem. And it would be interesting to see if that were a possibility at the end of this case. And speaking of ends, this is the end of day six testimony. As I said, there's a lot of circling around. We talk about Agent Peely being naked or not. We talk in general about relevant markets and what and whether Fortnite creative mode is a game or not, but not a lot of really specific answers. And hopefully we'll get into more of those. However, now that we're into the kind of expert testimony, I would expect it to have a little bit more dryness and a little bit fewer direct answers, uh, especially if they're going to talk at length about the testimony that they've already provided to the court. That's been day six. Again, thank you to The Verge, Addie Robertson, Tom Warren, all the rest of the journalists that are talking about this case and live tweeting it. If you enjoyed this kind of coverage, Epic versus Apple, really extensive coverage here in this space, please consider supporting the channel. We've got a Patreon, we've got Streamlabs, we've got a store with shirts and mugs, or just subscribing, ringing the bell, telling your friends, upvoting, downvoting, leaving a comment, really just telling YouTube that this is content that you enjoy, that you think others would enjoy, Every single little bit helps, and I am so appreciative of all of you that help make this channel just a little bit more popular. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.